Thank you for joining us on the Hope Church LV podcast. We're excited you came across this message. If you're joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say welcome to Hope Church. Go ahead and open up the Hope Church LV app or visit HopeChurchLV.com and click connect with us to fill out a short digital connection card. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe, rate and review our podcast to help spread Hope Church to the world. Once again, thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Hope Church family. How are we doing this morning? Okay. My name is Scott. I would love the chance to meet you. If I haven't, I'll be out in the lobby after our service. Would love the opportunity to meet you. Uh, Join me, Genesis chapter 3. I want our Bibles open on our apps or on our laps right there. We're going to be in there in just a minute. Genesis 3. Buckle up. We got a lot to cover today. And I want to begin by uh, talking about a, a very interesting article that I found online this week from several years ago. This was the, the very packed heading of the article. Here it is. How New York City's Tiger Man raised 425-pound pet cat in Harlem apartment. This is a real story. I'll put a picture up here. This is the animal control trying to track down in this apartment this Bengal tiger. It's really happened. This man bought a very cute and cuddly Bengal tiger and brought it home to his 550-square-foot apartment in Harlem. And this cute little cuddly cat grew to be 425 pounds. He didn't see the problem. He said this in a quote. He said, consciously, I knew I had a tiger, but the physical interaction and bonding, it was so natural. So he continues to raise this beast. And then he says this, it was all carefully thought through. Zoom in on this line right here. My whole intention was to keep him low key for a little bit of time. And then of course, the reason I tell you this story is what naturally happens, happened. Out of nowhere, this massive cat attacked its owner He was rushed to the hospital, fret not, he lived, and they took the cat and they sent it off to an animal refuge. But I have a couple takeaways that I just want to begin our time together this morning. Here's takeaway number one, probably the most important thing I'll say all day, don't own tigers, okay? (laughs) Why? They will grow up no matter how small they start and they will try to eat you. (laughs) It's what they do. Naturally, it is what they do. But here's the second takeaway, a little deeper, a little more serious. It's a parable. This story is a parable of our real lives and a real problem in our lives. You see, sin might start cute and cuddly at first and be manageable, but it will do what it does, and it will grow up, and it will kill you. This is a parable for us. It's what sin does. If you're just joining us, last week we started a series called Killjoys. Encourage you to go back online and watch that first message. But what we're trying to do, the goal of this series is to help us as followers of Jesus. The majority of this room follows Jesus. The the whole point of this series is to help us take hold of the joy that we are supposed to have in Jesus. If we are followers of Christ, he has won us joy, overwhelming, overflowing joy. Let me show you. Jesus is talking with his disciples about what it looks like to follow him. In John chapter 15, the Bible word is abide. What does it look like to abide in Christ, be with God in a relationship? 
And then he says why he's saying all this. Look at it in John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you, says Jesus, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is ours as followers of Jesus. But here is my experience personally at times. And now my experience is I pastor Hope Church. This joy is not the overwhelming characteristic of followers of Jesus' lives. It's not how we would characterize our lives, but we can. We can take hold of this. Why aren't we experiencing this joy? That's what all last week was about. But just as a way of reminder, I believe it's because there are some things under the surface some pet tigers, if you will, that are growing under the surface, doing exactly what we name this series after, killing our joy. So last week, we introduced the, the idea, the, the game plan, the strategy is to wage war against the sins under the surface. Romans chapter 8, verse 13 tells us how to do it. By the Spirit in us, we fight, we put to death, we destroy the things that are killing our joy. That's what this series is about. And last week we learned that we might not fully experience this joy because of the sin that is still in us. And today we're actually going to go all the way back to the beginning and read the origin story of that sin. Today we're going to look at a story that whether you've been in church your whole life or this is your first time ever, you have probably heard this story. In fact, the rest of the series, we're going to be looking at Old Testament stories that if we're not careful, many of us have, have regulated to Sunday school stories. Oh, these are the nice little cute stories in the Old Testament for the kids. The problem is, I've experienced this, the human heart and the enemy around us has not changed much since the beginning. And so we can learn some stuff from these stories that we've written off about our own sins under the surface. So today, we are setting our sights on two sins under the surface. Here they are, pride and rebellion. Pride and rebellion. I believe these two things give way to every other sin in our lives. So here's the big idea. Here's where we're headed in our time together today. The pride and rebellion that started in the garden is still at work today and must be fought for God's glory and our joy. For the remainder of our time, I'm going to hopefully convince you with the word of God of that the pride and rebellion that started in the garden is still at work today and must be fought for God's glory and our joy. So we turn to the very beginning pages of the Bible. And if you've even never read the Bible, you probably know how the Bible begins. It begins by saying, in the beginning, God created. So the first two chapters of the Bible, even if you've never read it, you know the story. God just is creating all this incredible stuff. He's creating all that we see around us. And over and over again, all through Genesis 1 and 2, it says God created and he saw that it was good. God created this and that and the other and he saw that all of it was good. And then in his image, God makes man. He calls him Adam. You know the story. He places him in a perfect, incredibly beautiful garden called Eden. And everything is so good. And as he places him in this perfect garden, I want you to see in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, what God tells this new man, Adam. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. Here it is, to work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. And the Lord 
God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Get it, Adam. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God commands Adam. He gives him a charge as he places him in this beautiful garden. And he says he needs to work it and keep it. The way I want to frame it up for our time this morning is, I want you to be a gardener and a guardian, Adam. I want you to work it and keep it, a gardener and a guardian. And then he gives him this very clear command, do not eat of this tree or you will surely die. God said it. What does he mean by death? He means spiritual death, separation. But that separation would eventually also lead to physical death. And remind you, this is an unknown concept to Adam. He doesn't know what death is. But God said it would happen. And some of you know the story. God, in his image, creates a counterpart for Adam. He creates Eve. He continues to show this man grace and compassion. He said everything was good, but it wasn't good for man to be alone. And so, in grace, he creates a partner for Adam. Adam calls her woman. Before we move on, I just want to remind you, like, this is an amazing scene so far. We are two chapters in. Adam and Eve are walking with God. Everything is perfect. Literally says they're in the cool of the day, walking with God in the Garden of Eden. I mean, you talk about fullness of joy and peace and love and everything is perfect. And then we turn the page to chapter 3. And in chapter 3 of Genesis we read of the most devastating thing that has ever happened on the planet Earth that would eventually lead to every other devastating thing that would happen thereafter. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first 13 verses of Genesis chapter 3. Now, a disclaimer. There's no way in the time we have remaining today that we can do an exhaustive, deep-dive Bible study of Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 13. So we've made some resources available to you. If you do want to dive deep, if you open the Hope Church app and on the notes page at the very bottom, we have a couple resources, a couple free resources. We'd love for you to dive deep. We are not going to be exhaustive in our time together today, but if you so choose, you can go check out those Resources, But we're going to look at these first 13 verses specifically with the lenses on of seeing pride and rebellion that started in the garden. We're just going to do kind of a running commentary like we do through these 13 verses. So if you're ready, say, I'm ready. Amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. The Lord God had made. Now pause right there. Some of you are like, well, who is this? This is an interesting situation that we will not be able to dive deep in, but those resources might be helpful because this is about to blow some of your minds right here, okay? What we meet here is the enemy of God. We know him from other parts of Scripture as Satan. From other parts of Scripture, we know that Satan, we know his origin story. God's word tells us that he was an angel in heaven who became prideful and wanted to be like God. God's not having it. So he kicks him out of heaven with a host of the heavenly beings that the Bible calls demons. Everyone all right so far? If you want to dive deeper, go to those resources. Now, Jesus talked about this serpent, this Satan. He said he was a liar from the beginning. And now that prideful, crafty, lying rebellious being is having a conversation with Eve in this story. And as we make our way through this story, 
want us to look through the lenses of pride and rebellion, specifically some traps that the enemy is going to set for our first parents, Adam and Eve. Here's the first way we see this trap from the enemy. Doubt and perversion of the word of God. Look at it right there in the back half of verse one. He, that's the crafty serpent, said to the woman, check this out. Did God actually say? You see the doubt he's instilling in the word of God? God said it. And now here he is. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So right here, we are seeing doubt and perversion of the word of God. It's, it's the enemy saying, did God actually say? And not only that, then he perverts what God did say. Notice that he said, did God really say you can't eat of any of the trees? No, that's exactly a perversion of what God said. God said, you can eat of every tree except one. You see the subtle perversion that some of us even missed in the story? He is doubting and perverting the very word of God. What started in the garden, church, don't miss this throughout this message. It's still happening right now. This same crafty enemy. Let's pick it up in verse four. But the servant said, servant said to the woman, again, check it out, more perversion. You shall not surely die. God said you would. And here he is perverting the word of God to say, you shall not surely die. Verse five, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, more doubt, more perversion. God said you're gonna die, but listen to me, Eve, you're not gonna die. In fact, he just thinks you're gonna be like him. He knows if you eat, you'll be like him. See these subtle ways that the enemy is perverting and doubting the word of God? This is pride at the highest level. Yeah, yeah, what God said, that won't really happen. I know better than God. It's still happening even in our midst. It's doubt, perversion of the word of God, but there's another trap as we keep reading. The other trap is distortion of the goodness of God. Look at it, distortion of the goodness of God. Look at verse six. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. What's happening here is Eve is in the middle of perfect Eden. Everything around is perfect, and yet the one thing that's off limits is the one thing that's good and a delight and desirable. What is this? This is perversion, and, and, and this is distortion, rather, of the goodness of God. Everything is at her fingertips that's perfect, and the one thing she can't have is the one thing she wants and sees as good. Some of you see where I'm headed with this. That's all of Eve's sons and daughters are just the same. It's a distortion of the goodness of God. She already had access to everything that's perfect and she's ignoring all of this, being led to have the one thing that's off limits. And then notice in verse six where Adam is. Some of you saw it. Gave some to her husband who was with her. Remember what God told Adam, Adam, protect everything that I'm giving you. 
be a gardener and a guardian. And yet in this moment, we see Adam abdicating his responsibility. What we see here, church, in this moment is the world's first passive man. And unfortunately, so many of us as his sons have followed in his footsteps ever since. It's our job, men, to work it and to keep it, to be a gardener and a guardian. God still gives us that as a gracious, loving command to, to protect what he's given us. And here we see the first time that was abdicated. But the woman's not off the hook. She consciously made the choice to do what she was not supposed to do. And right here in between verses 6 and 7, we read of a tragedy. Your Bible probably has its heading, the fall. What does that mean? The fall of all mankind. Something happens in this moment that fractures the very creative order. Look at it in verse 7. Something happened that made this happen. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. See, something in this moment fractures inside of them. Their eyes are open to their nakedness, which brings fear and shame. And then look at what they do. They do what every one of their sons and daughters have done ever since. They try to, on their own, with their makeshift ways, fix and cover up their sin. With a loincloth that they made, they put a Band-Aid over their sin. And we today are still just as guilty in every day. In the next few verses, God comes looking for them. I love that. Even in the midst of their sin, God pursues them. Some of you need to hear that. Even in the midst of your sin, God is pursuing you. And he asks, where are they? And Adam tells God, he heard, them, he heard him coming. They got fearful, they ran, they're naked. And look, pick it up in verse 11. He, that's God, said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now, before we read the next verse, that's a pretty straightforward statement. God says, did you do what I told you not to do? Come on, Adam, come on, Adam, step up, man. So we know where this is going. The man said... The woman! <laughs> Don't look at me, man. The woman, look at it, whom you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Blames his wife. Come on, man. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And then the woman follows in her husband's footsteps and said, the serpent! <laughs> The serpent deceived me, and I ate. What is happening here? Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. And in every situation since, we are tempted to not take responsibility for our own sin, but instead to look around and say, who else can I blame for my bad? We still follow in our first parents' footsteps. Pride and rebellion, they, they enter into every fabric of their being right here, and every human being afterwards would suffer the same fate. In this story, we see the pride of Satan that got him kicked out of heaven at work that leads to the rebellion of God's perfect image bearers, and everything is fractured. Everything is broken. Now, I don't think there's probably anybody in this room that hasn't heard some version of that story. The question we have to wrestle with for the remainder of our time is, what does that have to do with us? 
Like some of you are thinking, I'll just say it for you, like that's their bad. Why am I answering for their mistakes? But I think we really know once we get down to an honest moment, the thing they did to cross the line that God said not to, we do every single day in our lives. We are not off the hook because something changed in this story. This short story changed everything about what it means to be human. We all now carry this curse of sin. We're all tainted with this same pride and rebellion from the moment our lives begin. And we understand that to be true because we look around at this broken world and we say something is wrong here. It's what we just read in this story. Every area of struggle Every addiction, every vice, every abuse, every wrong action or bad intention or evil proclivity that exists in me and in you finds its root in the story we just read. Growing up, my mom used to always have a phrase that you probably heard before. I would do something that made it very obvious that I was her son, and she would say something like this. She would say, ah, the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. Remember that phrase? Listen, church, we gotta just come to grips with the fact that the apple of Eden doesn't fall very far from the tree. And for the remainder of time, I want us to see that the pride and rebellion that started in the garden is still at work today. And my burden is it's killing so many of our joy because we're just not naming it and figuring out how to fight it for God's glory and our joy. So I wanna look a little deeper at these killjoys of pride and rebellion, and then learn how we can wage war against them, right? That's the whole point of this series. Not to highlight sin, but to call it out and say, by the Spirit's power, how do we kill it? How do we wage war against this so we can take hold of the joy Jesus has for us? So pride. What is pride? I don't think it's overly simplistic to say pride is the seed of every sin. It's the the doorway to which all sin enters through. I love how C.S. Lewis said it. He said it was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Brass tacks, pride says, God, I know better than you. And every sin and every rebellion, it's really an issue of us thinking we know better than God. It's Pride. That's why Kevin DeYoung said, pride is a villain with a thousand faces. Pride leads to rebellion and some of the same traps that we see, we already saw in our story. So I want to revisit some of these traps, these, these two traps that we talked about and, and lay it over our lives to see that it's still at work today as it was in the garden. So that first one we looked at, doubt and perversion of the word of God. Remember Satan's words, so simple yet so destructive. Those words that he whispered to Eve in the garden is now he's whispering to billions of people around the world. Here it is. Did God really say? Did God really say? What's that look like in 2023? I know what the Bible says, but that's kind of an old book, right? A little outdated doesn't really fit politically correct in our world today. Like, right, did God really say? Still happening right now in our lives on the ground. And again, just call some of these things out that I've experienced in my life. You probably have in your life. Did, did God really say that there's only one way to heaven? 
Yes, God did. Did God really say that, that I should honor him with my finances and my, and my family and everything in my life, that everything really belongs to him and I'm gonna use it for him? Did God really say that? Yes. Did God really say sex outside of marriage isn't his will? Yes. Did God really say I need to be the spiritual leader of my family? Did God really say what I look at matters because it's not just my actions, but it's my intentions and my heart that really lead the way? Did God really say these things? So many Christians try to ignore what God has said, and the answer is yes. And we're believing the same doubt and perversion of the word of God that was in the garden. Did God really say? Here's what pride says. God, I know you said this, but... I don't think what you said would happen will happen. And it's exactly what the enemy told Eve. And some of us are not experiencing the joy of the Lord in our Christian lives simply because we've allowed pride to lead us to doubt and perverting the word of God and rebelling against what he says. So many Christians are trying to live their lives apart from the book that he gave us, full of things that he said eating up the lie, did God really say? I love how Paul David Tripp said it. It's a lengthy quote, but I believe it's helpful. He said, it's often a subtle thing going on almost unnoticed, but it has huge implications for the war we live. You and I step over God's boundaries because there are moments in our lives when we are able to convince ourselves that we are smarter than God. We tell ourselves that what he says is wrong isn't so wrong after all. We convince ourselves that we can disobey God and it will all work out in the end. It is the lie that was first told, embraced, and acted upon in that terrible moment in the Garden of Eden. Human beings have fallen into believing that lie ever since. There is something under the surface of our lives that is killing our joy, and some of it is just simply doubting and perverting the very word of God. Did God really say? But there's a second trap. It's not just doubt and perversion of the word of God. The second trap we looked at that's still alive today is a distortion of the goodness of God. Remember, Eve had the world at her fingertips. Everything was perfect One thing she couldn't have is the one thing she thought would satisfy her. And that is still a trap that we are believing time and time again, even in the church. Jesus was giving his disciples the enemy's game plan in John chapter 10, verse 10. Look at this verse. He says, the thief, that's the serpent, that's Satan. He comes only to steal and kill and destroy. You got to know that is his game plan for your life. Some of you are feeling that, but some of you are thinking he, he missed you. He's out to get you. But Jesus says... I came, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is what we're highlighting in this series. If you're in Christ today, he came that you may have fullness of joy, fullness of life. All of that is yours today in Christ. And yet we live in this world where there's this enemy prowling around seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. And there's a flesh in me that's at war against the spirit in me. If we're not careful, we'll start believing the lie that all that I have in Christ isn't enough. All the things he's promised me, if you could just have that that's outside of what he's promised me, then you'll be happy. What is this? The same distortion of the goodness of God that we found in the garden. 
James, the brother of Jesus, is talking about this same idea in his epistle. Look at it in James 1. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What is this? This is a verse that talks about that beautiful, little, cuddly, cute tiger that's growing up to devour you. Enticed and lured. These are words that talk about setting a trap. It's a trap, and it won't get you what it promises to get you. When I was in student ministry here at Hope, I used to talk to students a lot, and how I kind of coined this is I call what we're talking about here the if I can just get to trap. Let me show you how it looks. Start with junior hires. Junior hires think, if I can just get to high school, then I'm going to have some more freedom, the workload will be easier, and then you talk to every sophomore in high school, and it's not true, right? They're thinking, if I could just get to college, right? Then I'll have my driver's license. I won't live in my parents' house. Probably live in your parents' house, but you think you won't live in your parents' house. If I could just get to college, and then what happens? You, you get there, and it's not what it promised to be. If I could then just start to be a real adult, if I could just meet that significant other and get married and start a family, what is this? It's constantly reaching for that next thing that we think is going to satisfy us. If I could just get to fill in the blank, because then we know, middle-aged, 20s, 30s, 40s, you're thinking, if I could just get to that promotion or that car or that vacation, or if I could just get to that house, the sad reality is, and some of you are living this, we do that for about 40 years. And then it's if I could just get to retirement. <laughs> then I'll be satisfied. What is this? If I can just get to trap. It's always striving, never satisfied. What this is, church, is it's Eve in the Garden of Eden looking at the fruit and thinking it's good and delightful and desirable. But it will not give her what it's promising. Because it's a distortion of the goodness of God. All the while, for us as followers of Jesus, the paradise of Eden is in Christ. And it's not enough. Some of you right now are thinking, thanks, Jesus, for all the joy and all the life. But if I could just get this, then I will be happy. It is the fruit in your hand, and it will not bring what you think it will. And it's killing some of your joy as you chase it. Because the pride and rebellion that started in the garden is still at work today. And we got to fight it for God's glory and our joy. So how do we fight? That's how I want to close. I want to not just tell you the wrong. How do we, by the Spirit's power in us as followers of Jesus, fight and wage war against these sins under the service? Hopefully give you some really practical tips here. I want to give you two practical tips, and they're simpler than you think. Here's the first way you fight this pride and rebellion. You ready? Read the word of God. Some of you are thinking, are you serious right now? Oh, thanks for those five people that clapped. Some of you are like, are you serious? All that talk, you're gonna say, read the Bible. Yes. Listen, church, what if the solution is as simple as the enemy's delusion? What if the solution is as simple as the enemy's delusion? Remember what he said. Did God really say? Here's the problem. So many Christians don't know because they don't open what he says. So how will we know when he says, did God really say? 
Listen, church, I hear my heart on this. I'm so burdened about this. If we don't spend time in God's word, how can we know it? And if I don't know it, how can I use it as a, as a weapon against the enemy's lies? And if I can't use it as a weapon against the enemy's lies, I'm gonna get wrecked. And so many of us are getting wrecked. We're trying to take some podcast self-help one-liners we follow on Instagram and trying to use that against a very powerful enemy and we're dying. Rather than opening up the very word that he gave us, his inspired and errant, perfect word of God. And when the enemy says, did God really say, we actually have an answer because we read it. But so many Christians, they don't read the word of God. So they don't know how to fight a powerful enemy. Listen, church, this is how we fight. So many Christians don't have the weapons to fight. So you just gotta know, I'm gonna probably be up here for many, many, many years yelling and screaming at you, and I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna constantly and lovingly but bold you get us to be a people that get our face in this book. This is our hope. This is every day. You and I have an opportunity as a declaration of dependence. Say, God, I need you. I have no hope against an enemy who's powerful, more powerful than me. So I need help. Where do I get my help? I get my help from the word of God. Look at how Clyde Cranford said it. He said, we always find time to do the things we really want to do. Every time we go out of the house without having spent time with God, we are saying that we don't really need him. What is this? This is pride. So we fight that by getting in the word of God, reading, meditating, journaling, memorizing, so that when he says, did God really say we can have an answer because we live in it? It's not just reading the word of God. Oh, that's huge. Second and lastly, I want to encourage us to remember the work of God. Remember the work of God. What do I mean? The, the work of God on our behalf and the good news of the gospel. I believe the, the work of God on our behalf in the good news of the gospel is a pride destroyer. How do I make war against pride and rebellion? By remembering and savoring and celebrating the way God saved me. Every single day, remind yourself, no matter how you look at it, if you look at it with your Bible open, your salvation was meant and designed to humble you and to destroy your pride. Let me show you. We gotta get out of here. Romans chapter five, verse eight. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know why I love that? Because it doesn't matter if you are somebody who dropped out of junior high school and are homeless right now, or you're somebody who's got 15 degrees on the wall and make a half a million dollars a year. Everything, everyone on planet Earth falls into one category when you read this verse. Needy. Didn't have what it took apart from grace. That's why I love this verse. It levels the playing field. It doesn't matter who you are today. This is a pride destroyer. Nobody comes to the cross and says, I have enough to do what it takes. No, you don't. Because while you were still a sinner, while you were an enemy of God, he died for you. This is the greatest death blow to pride ever. It outs you no matter who you are, that you're needy. No one can boast. No one can flex and say they had enough. They didn't have enough. So he had to come perfect son of God. You couldn't come to God, so he came to you. 
You couldn't love God, so the Bible says he first loved you. You couldn't save yourself, so God saved you. What is this? This is a pride-destroying, humility-producing, joy-giving gospel. And every single day, we have to constantly remind ourselves, that's how he saved me. So how can I boast? Everything in my life is grace. To be a prideful Christian is an oxymoron. Anything you have, God did that and gave it to you. And it's something that would humble us and help us destroy this pride and rebellion that lurks under the surface. The Bible says Jesus is the second Adam. Some of you guys know that. What does that mean? Unlike the man in the garden, first Adam, Jesus obeyed perfectly. And he came to, to crush the head of the serpent in the garden. I love at the end of the story, we didn't read it, but you can go back later and read it. A few verses after we stopped, God himself gives the first gospel proclamation in the Bible. Look at it, Genesis 3.15. This is such an incredible verse. This is God speaking to the serpent right after the fall of mankind. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What does that mean? The heel of Jesus was struck because he was put on a cross and died. And in those three days while he was dead, the enemy and the whole host of demons, they thought they won. We did it. God was wrong. But of course, we know three days later, Jesus Christ crushed the head of the enemy as he rose and he crushed the hopes of darkness that they would not win because the kingdom of God is reigning and ruling. Right after our first parents blew the whole thing, God comes and says, I'm gonna restore that. This is grace. Right after everything is fractured, Jesus comes and says, I'm gonna fix that. This is good news for us. This is how we pop pride and rebellion in the mouth as it surfaces in our lives as we read the word of God, where we hear this incredible story of our redeeming, loving, gracious God. And then we remember the work of his on our behalf. And what does it do? It produces humility and helps us take hold of the joy he's been given to us. Let's pray. God, you're good today. So we just read these stories of your goodness. Even in our sin, you're good. Even in our folly, you pursue. Just pray for every person in this room. You know what's going on in every heart. Everything that's happening right now in this room, you are intimately acquainted with. I won't lead a very long response. I felt led this weekend, like I, like I sometimes do, of just asking the Spirit of God to do what He wants to do. But I just want you to know what's available to you. We're going to have pastors up here. If you want to pray about something, altar's always open. If you just want to have a moment with the Lord to just be humble and contrite. If you are somebody that doesn't know Jesus, I sure hope you've heard about how good and loving our God is. There is nothing you can do to earn his grace, but he freely gives it right now to any who would come humbly and say, I repent, I surrender, I trust you. However God may be leading in this moment, would we follow in obedience? Jesus, thank you for the song we're about to sing. You are our living hope. You're alive, and because you're alive, we trust that you're working and moving even in this moment. So do what it is you want, Lord. 
for our good, for your glory. We love you. In Jesus' name.